Hello and welcome to the Skewer Podcast. The Skewer is a live monthly news review satirizing the dumb news of the month that was. This particular episode was recorded on April 4th at Cafe Mustache in Chicago. Enjoy! Thank you, everybody, for coming to The Skewer tonight. It's The Skewer. Thank you. I am Tom Harrison. I will be your host for an evening of delightful op-ed and debate, satirizing the stupid news of the month that was. But before we get started with that, before we get into the gloom and doom, who wants to play a fun game? Does anyone want to play a fun game? This is where you react. Awesome. You had to say yes. So, to host this delightful fun game, let me bring up to the stage Kevin Johnson. Kevin, please host our fun game! (laughs) Kevin, what's our fun game? What is it? Uh, It's like two truths and a lie, except it's the headlines and it actually fucking matters. There it is. That's, that's, that was very quick. It was the quickest I've ever explained that game. But I do need a volunteer. Uh, you get some nice fucking skewer swag. And you don't look like a punk in front of all your, your friends. Because you know you're all going to be at the table being like, well, I would have gotten that right if I were on stage. Get your ass on stage now! Someone. Oh, Igor. Approach. This is what bravery looks like. I want you all to remember it. (laughs) What's your name? Egret. Okay. Coolio. I'm Kevin. You know, whatever. It's cool. Egret. All right. So I'm going to give you three headlines. Just tell me which one is fake. Very simple. Mm -hmm. All right. First story. A gorilla walks upright to avoid getting his hands dirty. Is that true or false? Story two. Pitbull, you know, Pitbull, Dale. <laughs> to speak at the United Nations about spaying and neutering dogs. Is that true? Third story. A nightclub is forced to shut down after a woman rides a horse onto the dance floor. <laughs> All right, well, I know the third one is true. So I'll, t- I'll take the gamble and say... Uh, the first one is false. No, that, that gorilla does walk upright to avoid fucking... <laughs> just like a fucking manicured gorilla or some shit. I don't know. Okay, so the, the fake one is Pitbull. He is speaking at the United Nations. That is not fake. But it's about the global water crisis. <laughs> Mr. Worldwide. I don't know what the fuck he knows about that shit. Whatever. All right, your, sec- your second set of stories... Story one. Man says he's not dead. Courts don't buy it. (laughs) Second story. A fired Vancouver waiter says, I'm not rude, just French. (laughs) Story three. Ben Affleck. 
caught lying about his big, dumb, bat signal. Bat. Tattoo. I'm just going to pick those at random. The second one is a lie. I mean, that's like a... I guess that's the best way to do this, just go at random. But no, that, that is not is true. Uh, uh, there was just some rude French guy that got fucking fired. Uh, ben Affleck does have a giant fucking back tattoo, but it's a shitty fucking phoenix. It's really fucking shitty. I hope it's for, like, University of Phoenix Online or something, too. All right third set of stories. Over 500 Canadian doctors protest raises, saying they're being paid too much. What? That doesn't seem right. <laughs> Not in America, that would yeah. Second story. An Afghan child named Orphan Annie proves divisive. Story three. From Cosmo, <laughs> women are marrying trees. And the reason will surprise you. <laughs> All right. Random pick time again. Okay. Uh, first one is false. No. Uh, Canadian doctors are protesting getting raises because they're getting paid much more than everyone else. Again, not happening in America. Um, the... the The incorrect story is actually the Afghan child, not named Orphan Annie. Uh, This child is named Donald Trump. No. I know. It's fucking weird. You did a nice job, though. Get you some nice skewer swag. Thank you. And we're going to start this show by welcoming my boy Tom up to the... Thing after he stops the recording thing. Tom, you're really killing my buzz with my fucking claps. Come on! I know, we were peeking. <laughs> Do you want to tell your friends that you went to a great comedy show? There's a podcast version, then they go to listen to it, and it's peaking. No, they'll think that we're amateurs. <laughs> I will say about that Pitbull story, I thought what you were going to say is the story about how he's headlining Naperville Rib Fest. <laughs> That's a real thing. Yeah. So I'm going to kick us off with the thing I wrote. You hear a lot how in the Trump era, satire is dead. People call the administration satire-proof, say there's nothing to joke about. Well, folks, I've been hosting and producing a new satire show in Trump's America for nearly a year and a half I've written over a dozen of these satirical opening essays about the state of our good country. And I've, I hear these people, these naysayers, I hear them poo-poo, and I can tell you from experience that those people have it exactly fucking right. Oh my God, it's impossible. <laughs> you can't do it. You just cannot, it can't be done. Because the trouble is, good satire requires you to bring to light something that normally you wouldn't see and dig as I must, the only thing I ever unearth is everything bad is still bad in the same way it has been forever. (laughs) You may have noticed how The Daily Show sucks ass now, even though every piece of Trump news is lurid to the point of obscenity. Like this month alone, the Secretary of State got fired while shitting liquid (laughs) diarrhea... Facebook sold the cheat codes to democracy to the evil corporation from RoboCop. And, like, 
Do you even remember Sam Nunberg? <laughs> no, right? You'd think with all this shit happening, the zingers would just flow like diarrhea from Rex Tillerson's oily hole. You'd think that any jamoke could just throw up a picture of Stormy Daniels and be like, looks like Stormy Seas for Cap'n Donnie and win 1,000 Peabody's and host the Oscars. <laughs> but behind the shrieking surface, even though every month constitutional democracy comes closer to collapse than I feared possible, even though we're in existential danger that I do not want to minimize, the sickening truth is that the right has been steadily, openly marching to this point for decades. The text is more vicious than ever, but the subtext remains, everything bad is still bad in the same way it has been forever. It's counterintuitive, I know, because the normal human response to 2018 is to just assume that something fucking went wrong, something's majorly <laughs> different now. You may have seen hashtag resistance liberals on Twitter go, this is not normal. I must assure you that it is extremely fucking normal. <laughs> Everything bad is bad in the same way it has been always, forever. Carve it into your soul, child. This is not normal is both inaccurate and harmful actively because what it's saying is that if we just got rid of this one wacko, we could go back to the paradise of 2015. <laughs> Guess what? It was bad then, too. The right has just had their finger on the volume slider for decades, and Trump is just the moment it got too loud to ignore. If we like, take, for example, how the right-wing information industry has mobilized the narrative in just one month, that the Parkland shooting survivors, David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez, are actively evil, monster people who, depending on who you talk to, are one, not high school students, two, work directly for Robert Mueller, three, are literally demons, or four, were the shooter! <laughs> that, one, that one's actually my favorite. I like that one. Just like imagine there's these fucking goddamn ice cold black ops motherfuckers just popping heads like they're at the carnival, and then Soros comes over the earpiece with like execute order sixty six, <laughs> and they transition like that into hyper charismatic liberal activists. Get out of here! I love it. <laughs> A sub-take that is not super mainstream yet, but is getting there, is that Nicholas Cruz, you know, the murderer, is actually good and the real victim. Hearing all this coming out of the mouths of mainstream American media, influencing and convincing millions of our countrymen, it sounds horrible. It sounds unthinkable. It sounds new. No, my friends. It is, in fact, old. For my entire life, it has been right-wing policy to hate all libs on site because they are libs. It has always been policy to hate victims for not using their freedom hard enough and instead shamefully allowing someone else to take it from them. Even decades ago during Columbine, people were saying that the shooters were victims who couldn't have helped it because they were bullied. Of course things are worse now. I'm not saying it's the same. Back then, no one was smearing specific survivors by name every day on Twitter. And if it seems unprecedented, it's because in terms of 
shamelessness and brazenness, it is, but it's all subtextually the same. What's different is the tone and the volume, which is loud and will only get louder. The Fringe is the mainstream now. Roseanne is back on network TV. A woman who believes that Trump is head of a secret government purge of satanic pedophiles like Obama and Hillary. And who thinks David Hogg is a Nazi, which is weird because you'd think that would make them like him more. <laughs> Trump wants to make uh, dealing drugs a capital crime. Kevin Williamson, a huge man who thinks women pee out of their butts, and who advocated for the death penalty for abortion, a policy which would literally be genocidal, was given a plum job at The Atlantic, a respectable, glossy magazine your parents read. <laughs> the consequence of Trump is that the subtext is, er, the consequence of Trump making the subtext text is that there's no need to hide anymore, which means the old fringe is the mainstream, and the new fringe has got to get even crazier to compensate. <laughs> like, we laugh at flat earthers now, they're harmless weirdos. Look at them f joking about their flat earth, haha. -ha. But just you wait until 2028 when President Gamer Boner 420 Racist Gamer <laughs> makes it illegal to call for a round of applause or buy products from Mariano's store brand Roundies. You won't be laughing then. Most of you already have a head start on not laughing, so you know. <laughs> The hypothetical president in this scenario has gamer in his name twice because the first time is to establish that he's a gamer just from the jump, and then the second time is specifically that he's a racist gamer. In, in 2028, this will be normal. And again, I don't want to make it sound like things aren't horrible by saying that they're bad in the same way they've always been forever. They are, they, they are worse than ever. Like, that's, that's true. It's not, it's just not a surprise. It's been coming and no one in power took action to stop it. Like, it is horrifying on its face that people with cultural cachet and national platforms are into race science now. But remember, that was literally one of the fucking founding principles of the country. <laughs> and as gutting as it is to admit, it never went away. It's just loud again now. Which is why all the fucking genteel civil moderates who want to hear both sides sound fucking insane these days. The shit tide is rising, but they refuse to rise with it and thus drown in Tillerson's drippy wake. <laughs> That's why The Daily Show sucks. That's why satire is impossible. All we experience is the rot, and it feels like the rot is new, but it isn't. Our pundits and our corporate satirists keep using their same tactics, tut-tutting that the right is saying the evil stuff too loud, like that's the problem. They're using the same fucking comedy playbook they did in 2005, except slotting in Trump's name like that's going to work. Guess what? It doesn't work. It didn't work then either. So what does work? Let's look again at the Parkland teens. Say, for example, a far-right Nazi ghoul steps to them with some disingenuous bullshit. A New York Times columnist would hem and haw about decorum. A Democratic politician would condemn their tone and immediately try to compromise. These teens? 
They know we live in a world of extremes and aren't afraid of it. They say, hey, listen up, you fucking moron. Eat my whole ass. And it works. Larry Krasner, the DA of Philadelphia, just put out new guidelines this month that put an effective end to marijuana possession arrests in Philadelphia and heavily incentivize not requesting jail time for offenders, instead recommending social rehabilitation programs that would allow them to stay part of society. He didn't fucking compromise with the ghouls who would gleefully strip all felons of citizenship if they had their way. He just did the good thing, and it worked. Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii this month said that he refuses to honor questions about how he'll pay for his free college for all proposal because finally a politician understands that we're not playing that game anymore. How will you pay for it is not a real question. It's a glue trap. He'll pay for it with the fucking money the government has. (laughs) Obviously. And I can't be certain that the skewer's satire is any better, that it's doing anything than giving y'all a few fun hours every month. But honestly, that's enough for me. But we can't just gawp at how crazy the right is. It's not new. We have to kill the roots. We've had to for years, and for too long we've let the job go unfinished. We have to push for radical changes to society. No more 1%, no more elite class. Social, yeah, give me them poetry reading snaps. Yeah, yeah. Ginsburg, man. Out with the dump. Um, uh, Social programs that allow life to be possible outside of the bonds of wage slavery. Motherfucking rights for women. Yeah, there you go. We cannot start from a position of compromise. We cannot assume the status quo is acceptable because that's what got us here. We cannot hope to be delivered from this in a stroke by Trump's impeachment or jailing, as fun as that would be. It's been like this. It'll stay like this. And if the statistics are anything to go by, y'all did not vote in the latest primary elections. And, huh, that's not okay. The general's coming in November. Redeem yourselves. No excuses. Papa's got his eyes on the means of production. And I don't want to be disappointed. Anyway, that's me. Thank you. We got a great show for y'all tonight. I want to keep us rolling with Skewer co-producer and excellent person, Erica Dreisbach, to give a voicemail op-ed! Oh, it's only 15 seconds to the voicemail? It's pretty close. Who are you calling? Some of you all may have seen that Deadspin mashup with the creepy uh, Sinclair news media all reading from the same script. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. But basically, a media group called Sinclair News Media Group has been issuing propaganda statements about how dangerous the media is and forces their anchors to read them upon penalty of being fired or having to owe the station several thousands of dollars. Um, so I'm going to call Rick Lips <laughs> and tell him I don't, I don't like that. So one moment, please, while I pull up the number. Hello? 
Uh, this is for a station that's based in Peoria. It's anyone's guess whether I'll make a, a play in Peoria pun. <laughs> Who can say what's going to come out of my mouth when the pressure's on? If you know your party's extension, to leave a message, press one. Here we go, guys. Hi, my name is Erica Dreisbach. I'm calling from zip code 60618 in Chicago, just a little to your north. I'm calling to express patriotic concern to your general manager, Rick Lips. Whoa. Okay, here we go. Here we go. No, everything's cool, guys. Here we go. Here we go. Hi, my name is Erica Dreisbach, and I'm calling from 60618, which is just a little to your north in Chicago. I'm calling to express patriotic concern to your general manager, Rick Lips, about station anchors forced to read propaganda on camera, not unlike state-run media in communist China or North Korea, which are often invoked in a racist and ahistorical way, but which I mean here in a literal, actual way. I have a lot of free time. And right now, there's a lot of traction for organizing boycotts for shallow anti-democratic media operations, so the propaganda scripts need to stop. You already know what happens next if they don't. Kate thinks love you. Bye. Thank you very much. You know, when you're, when you're doing a live voicemail, a lot can happen. We've also got some excellent merchandise, including the Skewer's new Best of 2017 book. Maybe Emmy, if you don't mind terribly holding up the gorgeous pink-purple cover. Woo! That's a good book. So come see me, and uh, I can hook you up with some great skewer merch. Erica, what if people want to leave their own voicemail op-eds? How can they do that? Well, on your table or nearby you is going to be a little slip of paper, and up there is the numbers for Dick Durbin, who I have on my phone as Dick, <laughs> and Tammy Duckworth, who's in my phone as Tammy. And you can call them. Now, remember that when you call your senators or representatives of government, they cannot hang up on you by constitutional law. <laughs> so feel free to just let her rip, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Erica. As Erica was saying, there are these delightful books. The Skewer Best of 2017, the best writing that was on the Skewer in 2017, as the title implies. It is $15, and it's delightful, and it's right there. Anyway, enough of that. The first op-ed of the night is going to be presented by a fellow by the name of Devin Whitlock. He is the president, or rather was the president, of his college intervarsity Christian fellowship chapter, but that didn't take. He now writes about gay comic books on the internet, has been published in Mel, and is a frequent contributor to geeksout.org. He will be appearing at Pour One Out at Volumes Book Cafe next Wednesday. Please welcome to the stage, Devin Whitlock. Thanks, Tom. (laughs) My favorite trope in science fiction and fantasy is the alternate universe. The idea that every time we make a decision, a parallel universe is created in which we made a different choice, leading to infinite versions of ourselves. From what I know of quantum mechanics and string theory, it's a gross oversimplification, but it's fun and presents endless possibilities. Even people who have never seen an episode of Star Trek know about evil Spock having a goatee. (laughs) I find this idea incredibly appealing. I like to think of all the different versions of myself that exist in other universes, older, younger, female, non-binary, 
one who became a fitness guru, one who went to grad school, one who finally published that novel. Every moment I stand up here, not vomiting from nerves, spawns another version of me who has. <laughs> but one version of the person I was has somehow been transported into our universe. I have seen an alternate of myself in the person of one Tommy Laren. <laughs> she is only 25 years old, from South what? Dakota, with a BA in broadcasting, yeah, young, right? <laughs> with a BA in Broadcast Journalism and Political Science from UNLV. She applied for an internship at the One American News Network, but instead was given her own show. <laughs> After receiving softball questions from Trevor Noah while working for Glenn Beck, she became a Fox News contributor. Her Facebook rant against Colin Kaepernick garnered, garnered 65 million views, and she currently has more than one million followers on Twitter. The best thing that can be said about this person is the very funny feud she got into with DC rapper Whale, who referred to her in a song as Tammy Lauren and sparked a trend of people giving her the incorrect name that has lasted for more than a year and which I will continue here. <laughs> Tamika Lowry made the news in mid-March <laughs> by talking about kicking her dog on Instagram, on which she has 1.2 million followers, which led to protests from PETA and confrontations with TMZ. My first thought was that of course a person like this kicks her dog, it's probably a hobby. I also wouldn't have been surprised if it turned out that she doesn't have a dog and had made the whole thing up just to be in the news. But her time to shine came in the wake of the March for Our Lives when she tweeted, simply being anti-NRA is not a solution. March for something, not just against everything. Despite that what they were marching for was literally in the name of the march. <laughs> she was also mocked for wearing a gun with her yoga pants, which makes sense. <laughs> when I was 25, I was working at the unemployment office in New Jersey. I had earned the ire of PETA while working for the pharmaceutical industry, but that had gotten the attention of significantly fewer than one million people. I interned at the March of Dimes, but did not get my own TV show. <laughs> I belonged to a conservative church and got my BA in English from a state school. People told me I was destined for greatness. Teachers, preachers, prophets, priests, family, all said I was so smart and talented, obviously touched by God. At first, I thought this showed how easily impressed people in New Jersey are. <laughs> But no, this is a problem everywhere. White people will rush to elevate the most mediocre person they can find, lest a talented non-white person prove they can be supplanted. Oh, you like to read? You must be the goddamn chosen one! I was supposed to be the next Billy Graham or C.S. Lewis, and to those people, that was a good thing. <laughs> I was very frustrated with the very wide gulf between these expectations and my reality, and it was one of the contributing factors that led to two botched suicide attempts, my first stint of homelessness, and my leaving behind the whole mess of Christian evangelicalism and Republican politics. Yeah. I'd like to think that I would not be a party to the current trends of those movements if I had stayed on the course I'd been on, 
that despite George W. Bush being the first president I ever voted for, and my attendance at a church that thought Kirk Cameron was too liberal, <laughs> that I would not be a supporter of Donald Trump and would abhor his racist fascist agenda. But Tamron Laura supported Marco Rubio in the beginning and has said she's pro-choice. So I take back what I said earlier, she is right about one thing, just one. I was always against capital punishment, but I also remember how awful I was about everything else. I would not let friends of mine speak Spanish in my presence. I believed HIV was a God-ordained plague to rid the world of gay people. I owned more than one book by James Dobson, the man Mike Pence considers a mentor. And these are just the things I feel comfortable telling you all about. <laughs> There's a lot worse. If YouTube had existed back then, I would have done exactly what Tabitha Lorax does. <laughs> all my creative aspirations would have found their expression online in hateful bile spewing for the masturbatory fantasies of alt-right trolls. It's no surprise that most of these far-right douchebags are failed entertainers. Stephen Miller wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Dana Lesh sent a failed TV sitcom pitch to an NCIS producer. If you look at a lineup of Fox News commentators, it's a who's who of failed 90s Evening at the Improv guest performers. <laughs> they believe in white supremacy and that the world owes them everything. And when they do not get rewarded as any other white person's mediocrity, they lash out. That's part of why they do what they do. It's easy. They don't have to think about why they feel angry or why the world is the way it is or why they feel so entitled. They prey on hysteria, hate, and fear and turn it into gold. Tandy Lancelot is a pretty blonde white girl with dead eyes who's been given everything. She is the perfect spokesperson for white privilege even as she denies it exists. And her followers and Donald Trump's followers eat it up. She may be a female version of my younger self in another universe, but she is very much a product of the white supremacy in this one. When I was thinking about this topic, friends of mine worried I wouldn't be able to talk about it because Takeshi Lasorda hadn't been in the news for a while, but I knew it was only a matter of time before she said something stupid and evil. Like Ann Coulter before her trying to stay relevant by being more racist, and like Ann Coulter, maybe she'll start running onto college campuses or into the waiting arms of Bill Maher, another irrelevant white hate monger, to shout stupid and horrible things. When her star fades, maybe she'll realize how empty her life is. I lose sleep sometimes, thinking about the people I hurt when I was Tamika Landry's age. I wonder about how many gay teenagers committed suicide because of things I said. Part of me is happy for that shame. That self-awareness is what prompts me to make up for what I've done, to work at undoing the hurt I've caused. Tormi Lakshmi lacks all self-awareness. Her hypocrisy is on full display as she admits to benefiting from an Obamacare provision and does not react to the news that her great-great-grandfather was an undocumented immigrant arrested for forging immigration papers. She is as famous as people said I would be one day, but she is miserable and making the world a worse place. People tell me I should be optimistic. If I change, that means anyone can, right? But I know what it took for me to change, and I don't know if she will ever experience anything like that. 
I see who I was in her, and I am happier for being myself. Thank you. Thank you one more time to Devin Whitlock. Devin, thank you. That was incredible. And as much as I agree with the general point about how it's bad that mediocre white people just get rewarded for nothing, please tell me what a good job I did after the show. <laughs> Our next op-ed reader writes for Mike about U.S. politics, unfortunately. He has been published in Deadspin, Paste, New City, and several literary magazines, many of which still exist. <laughs> According to reader email, he is, quote, a lackey for the corrupt Democratic Party and the corrupt Clinton cabal. Please welcome to the stage, Eric Lutz. That's a tough one to follow, so I'll do my best. Um, thanks for having me back. I was supposed to read here last year around this time, but I was not here, so Tom pretended to be me and did like a better job than me at being me. So uh, let, me, let me see if I can get into my own skin here. Um, okay, cool. <clears throat> Wrote about politics for the first time when I was 16 was exactly the person I seemed like I would have been. As fragile emotionally as I was physically, head full of shaggy sheepdog hair that every white suburban teenager in the mid-aughts was bound by law to have, <laughs> and confidence in my opinions that was totally unearned. George Bush was president then, and it seemed to me that I could change that using my very influential position <laughs> as a writer for my high school newspaper. <laughs> Strangely, my, un, my lengthy, unreserved screeds in the York High did not have any measurable effect on national politics. But they did have a lasting impact on how I viewed the journalism career I'd eventually have years later. This job doesn't have a lot of security or salary to recommend it. I saw a study once that ranked reporter is the worst job in America behind <laughs> logger, <laughs> active military personnel, <laughs> and taxi driver. <laughs> my quality life, according to the study, would be better if I spent my days killing cockroaches than writing about the news. But I've tried to remind myself that this is also a privilege to do this job. It's a privilege to be able to talk to a whole bunch of people all at once about whatever I think is important. It's a really awesome thing to be allowed to do. Not a lot of people are allowed to do it. And I try my best to remember that and honor that. I'll admit it's been a little tough lately, though. I've been getting worn out. A lot of days I wake up, dread logging onto Slack, dread scrolling through Twitter, because I'm just fucking sick of the whole thing. I still don't think I'd trade this career. I'm not ready to upgrade to logger or pest control person just yet. <laughs> but I do fantasize sometimes about spiking my laptop like a football and, say, starting a restaurant that only serves stew. <laughs> That doesn't sound like a bad life, does it? Stew's great. <laughs> Stew doesn't brag about the size of its inauguration crowd or nuclear button. 
Stu doesn't challenge other Stu to a fist fight, even though both Stu's are old as shit. <laughs> Stu doesn't have a take on Roseanne. <laughs> Stu is just Stu. But covering Trump, writing about politics on the internet in 2018 gets really fucking tiring. This is especially true if, like me, you've had to follow the whole Trump-Russia saga with any level of detail. I've been writing about this since... Uh, excuse me. I've been writing about this since it became a story back during the campaign. For the better part of the year, this has been my beat. I always hate to tell people that. By this point, saying that a significant portion of your week is devoted to covering Trump's connections to Russia gets you the kind of looks from strangers and first dates that are usually reserved for people who say they don't believe in vaccines. <laughs> and you know what? They're right to raise their eyebrow. Not because it's not a story. As Robert Mueller has already shown, there's more than enough evidence uh, to take a good, hard look at Trump's campaign and the hostility toward investigators he's shown since taking office. No. They're right to look at you funny because they're not sure if you're one of those Russia story people. People who belong to a certain strain of the so-called resistance that talks only about Russia, 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 as Trump would say. People like Claude Taylor, Louise Mensch, and Seth Abramson. Uh, yeah, boo. <laughs> An online unit of self-appointed Russia sleuths that has attempted over the past year to tweet Trump and his clan of mutant meatheads into handcuffs, or at least carve out a little relevance for themselves. These people are buffoons, and they need to fucking stop. <laughs> so if you're unfamiliar, I'll explain a little bit who they are. Almost invariably white, and almost entirely men, these sudden Russia experts deliver the vast majority of their expertise on Twitter. You know, the platform preferred by lunatic trolls, <laughs> thirsty influencers, and our president when he's taking his morning shit. They all possess dubious qualifications, but they do their damnedest to make themselves sound like they'd know what they're talking about. Taylor, who tweets from the handle True Facts Stated, <laughs> some True Facts Stated fans in the crowd. <laughs> he claims to be a veteran of three presidential campaigns and a former staffer in Bill Clinton's White House, which would indeed seem authoritative, if not for the easily findable fact that his position in Slick Willie's White House was a $35,000 a year gig in the administration's volunteer office. <laughs> not knocking anyone earning $35,000 a year or shitting on people who work in the volunteer office beats the hell out of logging, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but that's not exactly the kind of role that prepares a person to chart the latest twists in the Russia saga, something hammered home by some of the scoops he's gotten. Last August, he and Mensch, a former British MP and noted conspiracy theorist, made headlines with a holy shit scoop from an unnamed source that Trump was under investigation for sex trafficking. Now, I understand why they bought it, because to be fair, that does sound like something Donald Trump would do. <laughs> he is, after all, the Forrest Gump of crimes. <laughs> no matter when or where, if there's a crime going down, Donald Trump is going to fucking be there. <laughs> but it turns out this little tidbit of information was fed to Taylor and Mensch via a hoaxer someone whom neither of these self-professed citizen journalists bothered to vet in any way. Taylor, to his credit, acknowledged his error in a brief statement after the tidbit was revealed to be bunk. But Mensch declined to give even that most cursory nod to in integrity and ethical responsibility. Instead, she brushed off questions from The Guardian. 
I don't think anybody can vet anyone else's sources, she said. <laughs> Presumably to a person whose job it is to literally vet other people's sources. <laughs> and yet she still pales in comparison to Abramson. This bozo, currently a creative writing professor, has used his past life as an attorney to talk his way into some appearances in traditional outlets like the BBC and CBS. But the vast majority of his analysis happens on Twitter, where he's fond of breaking down the significance of the latest Russia minutia in wearisome threads, some of which, no joke, span 70 goddamn tweets. Something that, on its own, is cause for someone to sneeze into his fucking stew. <laughs> but the true fact here is that neither Abramson, nor the other Russia hawks, nor any of us in this room really know anything. That's the reason Mueller was hired in the first place. To tell us what we don't know. These idiots are simply living out a fantasy. Something they don't exactly hide from, given that Taylor literally drives around in a mystery machine van like Scooby-Doo and his gang. I swear to God, look at pictures. Yeah. <clears throat> um, these Russia hawks would be easy enough to ignore if not for the massive followings they've built on Twitter, a medium that, to my chagrin, carries significant influence. As of this writing, Taylor has a following of more than 200,000 Twitter users. Mensch has almost 140,000. Abramson, God bless him, has almost 500,000. And each of these people has one of those blue check marks next to their handle, a symbol for many people of a source's trustworthiness. And they're not. They just aren't. Maybe they're grifters. Maybe they're guilty of misplaced good intentions, victims of their own indomitable hope. that this long national nightmare can be brought to a close. As a former 16-year-old high school journalist seeking to overthrow the Bush administration, I can certainly empathize. <laughs> But in substance, their bodies of work are not really all that different than the kind of conspiracy theorizing that we all used to mock right-wingers for doing on TV every afternoon in the Obama years. Glenn Beck had a bow tie and a blackboard. Abramson has an academic's beard and 240 characters. <laughs> Still, it's not their lack of trustworthiness that really riles me up. Their greatest sin, as I see it, is the take on what happened in 2016 that's implicit in their collective narrative, that Trump stole the election from Hillary, that Trump does not represent us, that this is not who we are. The truth is, this kind of is who we are. And it's naive, maybe even dangerous, to suggest otherwise. After all, there has been no indication that Russia ever physically changed a vote as part of their interference, which means 46% of this country cast a ballot for Trump. And it wasn't that they didn't know who he was when Election Day rolled around. They had decades to, know, to get to know him and could nary open a newspaper, fire up their computer, or turn on a television without seeing his stupid mug hundreds of days in a row between the time he launched his campaign in 2015 to the time Election Day rolled around. None of the awful shit Trump did was a secret. He publicly bragged about most of it. Millions of people just decided they didn't care. Many of these same people still don't. Sure, some of them may have been swayed by Russia's fake news campaigns on Facebook and other social media platforms, but really, what does that say about us, that we are able to be taken in by them like that? We've gotten so fucking dumb as a country that we just believe whatever the fuck we see on Facebook? They're so polarized, we're willing to blindly accept the most incredible claims, as long as after about that asshole over there? Sorry, none of that reflects particularly well on us. 
Fact is, America's not a healthy country right now, and it hasn't been for some time. We're a wheezing, coughing, sneezing, dizzy country. Trump is but the cancerous physical manifestation of all that. Reminds me of this old urban legend, one likely you know. Concerns a babysitter who's just put the kids to sleep upstairs, <laughs> still on the downstairs couch to watch television. She receives a phone call. The man on the other end of the line says, check the children. She hangs up a little unnerved. She lets it go. A little while later, though, the phone rings again. It's the same menacing voice, check the children. By now, she's in a little bit of a panic, phones the police, and they say they'll trace the call the next time he rings. Shortly thereafter, he does check the children. She hangs up, by now terror-stricken. The police call back, and you know what they say. They say, get out. The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> and I've been thinking a little bit about why this urban legend is so frightening. Why is it so much scarier that the slasher is already in the house than it would be if he busted in like the Kool-Aid man to do his murdering? <laughs> what if he was in the driveway? Why would that be less scary even if he was making the same cryptic calls? <laughs> the urban legend's power, I think, derives from the revelation that this whole time you've been more vulnerable than you knew. The reality you assumed you were living in was a lie. The danger you believed was external, outside the house, outside the country was really actually there with you the whole time. No wonder so many other campfire stories and scary movies are born of a similar premise. The scariest part of The Shining isn't Jack Nicholson lumbering after his family with an axe. Shelley Duvall leafing through the page of the book he spent their whole Snowden winter together writing. Revelations like these aren't only frightening but sad, because you've lost something you didn't know you had to lose. So it's understandable that we'd look for any narcotic to help us uh, avoid reckoning with these hard facts. I suspect this is, why, this is part of why so many of us fixate on Russia. It's more comfortable, less painful, to persist in the belief that America would be just fine if not for those pesky Russians over there in Russia <laughs> who hijacked our democracy and put our biggest, wettest piece of shit in charge. <laughs> but we're all the urban legend's doomed babysitter now. The call was coming from inside the house. We just weren't paying close enough attention to notice. So I'm not going to stop writing about Russia, and I'm not going to stop hoping that Republicans will find some courage to act on whatever it is that Mueller finds, provided the president doesn't fire him first. I'll also try to locate some enthusiasm for the story as I write it, because I do think it could be a big story, one of the biggest of our lifetimes. The comparisons to Nixon are not a joke. He, too, dismissed the Watergate investigation as a witch hunt. But I'm also calling on us all to exercise a little measure on the whole Russia thing. <laughs> Trump should let Mueller do his job, and so should we. Instead of buying what Taylor, Mensch, and Abramson are selling, we shall continue to confront all the ills that plagued us before Trump metastasized and entered office, and will, if we don't watch it, linger long after he leaves. Thanks once again to Eric Lutz. When you said urban legend, what I was sure you were going to say is the clown statue story <laughs> where the babysitter puts the baby to sleep and notices that there's a very upsetting clown statue in the room and it's like, whatever, and the parents call later and the babysitter's like, oh, the kid's fine, uh, but there's a really weird clown statue in the room. And the parents on the, uh, on the phone are like, oh, my God. 
we don't have a baby. Get our clown statue out right away. (laughs) Before we go on to our third op-ed writer, does anybody wish to win a delightful free skewer sticker by being in our fake news game? Doesn't matter, because you have to. Kevin, get up here. Time for your second dose of mandatory fun. Motherfuckers, volunteer. Someone, you. No, there's this is dude in the back. I'll get to you next, don't you worry. <laughs> He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Were you here before? Do you know what this game is? Or are you just volunteering? You just want to be on stage? I've never been on stage before. Okay. <laughs> Good enough for me. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Woo! What's your name? Is Frank. I'm Kevin. This is like some fucking regal shit. He's like got the fucking... Damn. Like, I don't drink, but like now I'm like, maybe I should do it just to hold that shit. All right, so I don't know if you were here, so I'm going to explain this. Uh, I'm going to give you three headlines. Just tell me which one's fake. We're going to do that three times. If you get it right, good. Bring it on. Motherfucker, I will. All right. Your first story. Sacramento Kings fans create mass confusion by attempting to sell their own Gatorade to players during a game. That's pretty weird. Story two. Rabbi declares genetically cloned pig meat kosher. Story three. Doctor shocked by a three and a half inch air bubble where part of a man's brain should be. Which one of those is fake? I, I don't follow any of the sports ball, but mm. the first story sounds like it wouldn't happen in Sacramento. It sounds more like something from the Midwest, so I'm going to say that's a fake one. That's it. That is... Okay. That is... Sure, yes. You're, you're correct. I don't, I, I, I don't know that the logic was sound, but it worked. So the, the real story is uh, they were actually spooning mayo from her jar and putting it into their goddamn heathen mouths. Like some fucking snack. That's right, it's Hellman's own mayo. They're making their own hell. Anyway, second set of stories. First one. Man guilty of a hate crime for filming his pug's Nazi salutes. You know, like a dog, Hitler, you understand. Okay. Second story. Thank God. Journalists think they've cracked the who bit Beyonce case? Do you got all that? You, you got all that? You're looking very confused. I've heard that one. Okay, okay. Story three. Protesters arranged for a plane to drop tons of urine in Russia using the golden shower to highlight the opposition of Trump and Putin. Mm. See, the third one sounds like something that really gets shut down before it happens in Russia, so... I'm going to say third story. If you, gotta, if you can grease them palms, you can do anything. So that's your guess, though. And you're correct. Yeah. 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 Huh. So, well, we know so, one of the golden showers. So is the true. face spider is still at large. Uh, what? Spider? What? The, the face spider. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no. I, th- I think they actually got her, though. Oh, 
I, th I think it's like another actress. It's a, you can go online. You got the internet. <laughs> so yeah, the, the f there was no plain thing doing that. It was actually dropping gold and silver bars over Russia, three tons worth. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of money. Don't don't do that. All right. Let's even go three for three because no one has. I'm ready. I'll, I will I will give you my drink ticket if you can get three for three or anyone that gets three for three. All right. First story. A startup is pitching a mind uploading service that requires you to give the company half of your life savings, but it's buried deep in the terms of service. Mm. Story two. Finally, there's a book about which animals fart. <laughs> story three. This one's, this one's sad, so get your, your sadness on. Snapchat ran an ad asking users if they'd rather punch Chris Brown or slap Rihanna. Read the room. No. I'm trying to teach the world of things. Okay. Got to educate and... All right, so Snapchat's a Silicon Valley startup, which means they have no souls, so that's probably true. Um, Fair. I think I heard the one about the startup that offers to upload your brain, so I'm going to say the middle story. The what about animals farting? The what? book about animals farting, I should say. Well, don't all animals fart? Someone says no. <laughs> I'm, I'm from this generation, so that's at least enough for me to say no. Is, I don't know. You okay? So, um, I'm sorry to break the streak. Damn it! You did. You did a valiant effort, though. So the first one is actually fake. So they won't steal half your life savings, but the service is quote 100% fatal. <laughs> so there's an upside. Yeah. Good job, friend. Commendable effort. Welcome back to the stage, your host for the evening, Mr. Tom Harrison. Thank you again for Kevin Johnson and, oh my God, Frank, you rule! <laughs> First time on stage better not be your last. You got, you got it, my man. Uh, our third op-ed author of the evening was born in Ohio and bred in the state of anxiety. She has contributed to The Skewer, Cassandra, Potluck, and The Platonic Show, but her biggest contribution to date are the potato pierogies she made last week. Please welcome Melanie O'Brien! Shade your eyes against the horizon. Can you see it? All right, because it's stopping in South Bend. It's pulling over in Flint. It's pausing in Detroit, Akron, and Youngstown. 
Can you smell that? That's the smell of 12 venture capitalists. <laughs> they're three days gone on coal-infused kombucha, and they're tumbling <laughs> through the Midwest, oogling out the windows of their luxury bus, because it's the three-day comeback cities tour. Led by Ohio's 13th District Representative Tim Ryan, Democrat, California's 17th District Representative Rokana, Democrat, and other relatable authority figures like Peter Thiel, noted billionaire libertarian, and J.D. Vance, author of the exceedingly magnanimous Hillbilly Elegy, adored by conservatives and liberals alike, some of whom might even be in the room. <laughs> If you asked Tim Ryan or Rokana about the purpose of the Comeback Cities tour, they'd tell you 80% of venture capital investment is limited to three states. They'd want you to know Washington is too busy with its partisan political party titty twisters to care about economic <laughs> investment in the Midwest. So here's the situation. For three days, this bus of venture capitalists and politicians traveled about in Ohio, Michigan, and Indiana. The New York Times article by Kevin Roos termed it a Rust Belt Safari <laughs> to meet city officials and hunt for potential startup investments. But Roos mentions a, a funny thing happening when the tour completed, and I quote, that the coastal elites had caught the heartland bug. <laughs> <laughs> the article doesn't explicitly define the heartland bug. <laughs> So let's move on to some other definition. Let's define the heartland as the Midwestern United States, which encompasses not only Ohio, Michigan, and Indiana, but according to the Census Bureau, Kansas, Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, Missouri, North and South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Now what is Silicon Valley? The tech-dominated southern portion of the San Francisco Bay Area, geographically the Santa Clara Valley, but in our pop cultural osmosis, any West, any West Coast-based tech center. So you're in sunny California. You got the Pacific Ocean. You got one-third of all venture capital investment. As of February 2018, a 3% unemployment rate. And much like Jesus Christ, it was born in a garage in Palo Alto. <laughs> so once you're rich enough to stay there, why would you want to leave? We could ask Patrick McKenna, founder of High Ridge Venture Partners, who's quoted as saying, I'm a little over San Francisco. <laughs> it's so expensive, so congested, and frankly, you also see opportunities in other places. Every single person in San Francisco is talking about the same things. I hate Trump, or I'm going to do blockchain and Bitcoin. <laughs> it's, it's the worst part of the social network. Ro Khanna gave his reasons as, some of the engineers in the valley have the biggest egos known to humankind. If they don't have their coffee and breakfast and dry cleaning, they want to go somewhere else. Whereas here, people are hungry. His district includes Silicon Valley. <laughs> these, these are his constituents, don't worry. <laughs> Michael Moritz, Sequoia Capital founder, lamented the soul-sapping discussions about politics and social injustice had distracted tech companies from the work of innovation, which in his mind translates to 14-hour days for managers and engineers alike. 
and Peter Thiel, who has already made good on some threats and moved personal investment firm's Founders Fund and Mithril Capital to that serene elevator music city known as Los Angeles, <laughs> also cites San Francisco's toxic progressive culture and lack of intellectual diversity. And I won't question his motives further. Because it follows, it follows that goslings follow geese. That if you're a billionaire libertarian who co-authors a book titled The Diversity Myth, <laughs> then, then you're going to want to eventually move to areas that are also majority conservative in the name of diversity. <laughs> so, so we can move on and talk about J.D. Vance, who is devoted to diverting more capital to the Midwest. He, alongside with America Online founder Steve Case, run road trips called Rise of the Rest. These tours run through various cities in the Midwest, so citizens and entrepreneurs and investors alike can compete in pitch contests, where the winner gets a $100,000 brick kicked their way by Steve. <laughs> As of November 2017, he's kicked $4 million worth of bricks on this tour. And on an unrelated note, Stephen Case's net worth is a little over $1.3 <laughs> And I know a net worth amount includes investments in estates and doesn't translate to easily moved liquid assets, but fuck off. <laughs> there are two different kinds of West Coast residents to account for in this heartland scenario. And I mostly talked about venture capitalists who, having tired of San Francisco's politics, so they say, are threatening to invest elsewhere. Of the engineers, tech workers, and city citizens themselves, well, more people moved away from the San Francisco in the last three months of 2017 than any other U.S. city. 49% of Bay Area residents polled by Edelman want to move away. Are they going to follow the money? Maybe. Are these tours and safaris and angel investments going to amount to anything more than a dozen cool millions dumped into ill-conceived startups that can't survive alone in the context of a gutted ex-manufacturing town that's not equipped to produce a lot of tech-focused tech uh, interest and jobs? Maybe. <laughs> Here's how it's worked out in Silicon Valley. So you remember that 3% unemployment rate because the number gets a little less nice when you consider in 2016 alone, 10,000 people across San Jose and Santa Clara didn't have a roof over their heads at night. And this includes families with children, and very much includes families with more than one adult holding down more than one job for the privilege of sleeping in vans and RVs and cars after they were priced out of their homes and apartments in the housing boom that soared to accommodate high-salaried tech employees flooding into the city. These are longtime city residents who, because they had the mere audacity of not being able to or desiring to form a company, instead clean and maintain the buildings for those companies and landscape their parking lots, put roofs on top of their walls, scrub their toilets, or cooking and serving in the restaurants that feed those high-salaried employees. And how are those workers repaid? Because Mountain View has banned vehicles that are over six feet tall from sustained parking on particular streets Investors in San Francisco are campaigning to ban homeless encampments, and Palo Alto enacted a 72-hour parking limit on El Camino Real. But on the bright side, Mark Zuckerberg has donated $18.5 million to homeless initiatives. And Mark, Mark Zuckerberg's net worth, 
is worth $64 billion. <laughs> and if you want to discuss the issue of movable liquid assets at me, we can discuss it outside after the show. <laughs> a mistake here in the face of the venture capitalist aggravation with West Coast liberal politics, as quoted, would be to defend those particular politics without restraint. You know, so show me a rich West Coast ensconced liberal who has enacted lasting justice in the face of injustice, and I'll show you my 100% completed Sufjan Stevens Halloween costume from last year. <laughs> did, did not happen. All right. However, it'd be a mistake to disregard those politics completely. Because when these investors claim progressive politics limit their innovation and progress, one, they're often referencing ungainly, unproven, very expensive concepts like intelligence augmentation and radical life extension, and two, they really are exposing their true motives. Which is one, the Midwestern investment urge to merge is about their insatiable curiosity of discovering what the Midwest will let them get away with, and two, Ignore Rokana's assistance that interest in the Midwest is because of we're hardworking and hungry, we're politically and intellectually diverse, we're morally upright with a strong sense of self. What investor gives a crap about that? Because we're cheap. <laughs> we're really fucking cheap comparatively here. Real estate, cheap. Salaries, cheap. Cost of living, cheap. Looking through venture capitalist goggles compared to Silicon Valley, the Midwest is cheap as shit. Man. We will save, they will save a ton of fucking money. And what is money? Because according to Bitcoin investor Sean Walsh, <laughs> according to Bitcoin investor Sean Walsh, money is technology. And as you can see, when money is tech, life is cheap. And we never did define the heartland bug. So I ask, what is home? For a longtime resident of an economically disadvantaged place, home is where you're priced out of. For an investor, home is where the bargains are. When your net worth is off the charts, you're no longer plagued with these questions because in our earthy sphere, the transformative power of a ton of fucking money is near unlimited. Where innovation at all costs is salvation, other morals fall aside. And where work is the only virtue worth chasing, people will most certainly, constantly and invisibly die. It's amazing how our different environments will churn us out. Sometimes you get Rokana, who can easily say a huge majority of his constituents are assholes. <laughs> Sometimes you get Peter Thiel, who suffers no psychic pain from being a gay man and a Trump campaign investor. Sometimes you get J.D. Vance, who went from James Donald to mithril capital management principle on Mammoth shilling author, consumable by conservative and liberal in equal measure. And sometimes you get Melanie O'Brien, known dumbass, <laughs> signing off at Skewer. somewhere now. <laughs> All right, our final 
op-ed reader of the evening is a Chicago comedian who has opened for Tim Heidecker, Hassan Minaj, and W. Kamau Bell, and was featured at the 2017 Bridgetown Comedy Festival. He can also be seen in season two of Netflix's original series, Easy, Cabin Around the Fictionalized Chicago. In real Chicago, he also runs Monkey Wrench, a monthly comedy show little more than a leftist plot against the ruling class. <laughs> if you like the skewer, you will also like monkey wrench, is, the, is what I'm telling you. Please welcome to the stage, Arish Singh. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, guys, I'm bringing you tonight some uh, musical news. Uh, you may not have heard, uh, the Decemberists released their new album this last <laughs> month. Uh, it's entitled, I'll Be Your Girl, colon, The Hazards of Being a Mariner's Crane Wife. Um, it's, it's an epic synth-pop slash folk uh, album about pirates and bards uh, and, from the 19th century and about being 40 in Portland, uh, or something along those lines. I, I don't, I'm not entirely clear. I haven't heard the album, but the reviews are good, I guess. What I am here to talk about, though, is not the music on the album. What I want to talk about is what is literally on the album. Uh, on their vinyl, they've printed the broadest and blandest of resistance bromide. Side A says, uh, saying, uh, says uh, impeach the president, uh, and side B says, bring on the matriarchy. Uh, this is the first time I've ever heard of Mike Pence being described as the matriarchy, but okay. Um, now, uh, for the uh, piece de resistance of feckless resistance, uh, the uh, liner notes uh, for the album, and this is the point I want to drive home, thank Mr. Robert Mueller, the former FBI director who is currently head of the special counsel investigating uh, the Russian interference in the 2016 elections. Friends, forget playing ukulele on the stoop of a gentrifying neighborhood. <laughs> forget phone alerts keeping track of the latest craft beers. Forget fucking up the Millie Rock every single weekend. Forget finding the least spicy mayonnaise. The defining, defining white, white thing of our era is loudly and proudly respecting the feds. And let's, let's thank the Decemberists for distilling that so clearly. Now, when I say white people here, there is a bit of nuance. Uh, okay, so there, there is, uh, you might be inclined to say, as a person of color, you might be, you might say, uh, white people, let's run, right? There's that sort of thing. And then there's also white people, they're running. Again, they keep running around the neighborhood. This guy knocked into me last week. Uh, so there, there are these divisions. We do recognize uh, how white people differ among themselves. Uh, there are different strains, and I am here to talk about that latter. Um, and now mocking this kind of white person has become a kind of staple of stand-up comedy in most cities in the U.S., uh, you have people of color, comedians, uh, razzing the quinoa and kombucha white set, and uh, about gentrifying the neighborhood. And of course, they take the joke uh, while they take the neighborhood. Um, so <laughs> the power of satire is affirmed. Um, 
So this, this group of whites has become the subject of comedy for quite a number of years now, um, and, but it is probably best distilled uh, and cataloged in the 2010 book uh, Stuff White People Like, uh, written by uh, a white author, Christian Lander, uh, White People Like Taxonomy. So that's uh, something if you want to find out for me. Lander lays out the traits of these white subculture with chapters like White People Like uh, Asian fusion food, white people like Wes Anderson movies, white people like the idea of soccer, uh, white people like avoiding confrontation. Um, uh, it also uh, includes sections on white people liking Portland, Oregon, creative writing, uh, avoiding confrontation, organic farms, living by the water, or what I like to call Decemberist bingo. Uh, <laughs> The Decembris, if you're unfamiliar, is basically a second-rate neutral milk hotel with the mystic <laughs> lyrics swapped out for overwrought narratives about pirates and bards and all sorts of characters from 19th century literature, uh, sung with the nasal vocals of a mid-2000s emo rock f uh, frontman. <laughs> oh, Valencia! You're basically, that's a flavor. Um, <laughs> Now, I don't want to criticize uh, their music too much. Uh, I think they're a very ambitious band, and they did come with interesting ideas, and they just worked their way up by uh, building a fan base and getting critical praise. And this is a very hard thing to do in this era uh, where people are saturated with uh, these kind of major labels who control everything. And I, I want to respect all artists struggling uh, out there trying to make uh, money for themselves, even when they've received lots of critical praise. Uh, Venmo, Arsh, comedy. Um, but back... Uh, <laughs> But back to what I want to talk about, uh, the Decemberists uh, and their ethnic group that they come from, uh, the shiny, happy, badly dancing whites. Um, <laughs> the real thread that binds these folks, uh, whether it's grad school, reading The New Yorker, McSweeney's, uh, it's their investment in this credentialism treadmill. Uh, the stuff white people like, uh, they do like all of that stuff that Landers describes. They like it those white people, but what they love is professionalism. <laughs> this is the tie that binds. So while they know how to strike a critical pose and can see the system could be improved and mended, they believe at heart the system does work. After all, how else could they be such a part of it, right? Um, <laughs> don't punch your senators, call them, right? That's the, uh, the attitude. Uh, they, uh, they will defiantly not normalize Trump uh, but they're quite at home normalizing the system and the elite that gave us Trump when they swore uh, they wouldn't. Uh, and uh, animated by narratives like Woodward and Bernstein or the Watergate prosecutor Archibald Cox, um, uh, rather than, say, narratives about COINTELPRO, uh, their penchant for middle-class uh, middle credentialism, uh, these whites are eager to cheer on the fully qualified Comey and Mueller uh, who are being persecuted by the bumbling, goofy Trump. Uh, and his, his fumbling companions. Um, I know uh, uh, some people say it's, it's Mueller. Uh, I started off pronouncing it Mueller, um, and I like to mispronounce white people's names. So, um, <laughs> shame on you, Arish. Um, uh, but I prefer uh, Mueller, uh, I think also for other reasons. I think it fits him, uh, the man who is judgedly mewling the cry of justice uh, so, for so long. Um, against those Russian oligarchs uh, who stole our election from American oligarchs. <laughs>
Uh, now, I recognize there may be good uh, things that come from the Mueller investigation. Getting rid of crony politicians has its worth, even if it only spares the politicians who are less obvious about their cronyism. Uh, what concerns me, though, is that there are many people averse to this whole, uh, what I like to call, white professional supremacy. Uh, it's the, the narrative that inevitably comes along with it, and I think it was most clearly spelled out this January uh, in the liberal journal uh, Washington Monthly, uh, in an article written by John Stower, okay, I don't miss, another white name mispronouncing that one, um, uh, and uh, uh, it uh, spells out a view that I think many people have held um, about what motivates these uh, people who are so gung-ho about uh, the Mueller investigation, uh, and it's, that it's not just about justice, but advancing a certain kind of politics. Uh, Stower writes, I think Russia is a solution to political polarization. The Democrats should and must start using Russia as a way to break through the vicious cycle consuming the parties, Washington and the whole country. Russia is our enemy. This is a fact. It attacked our presidential election. It continues to attack us in what is emerging as a new cold cyber war. In tying Republicans to an enemy, the Democrats have the potential to break the Republicans. Do they want to stand with America or do they want to stand with Russia? Uh, the best part is that Democrats do not have to lie, distort, or otherwise misrepresent reality to make that case. Um, without delving into uh, the veracity of Russia being our enemy and, uh, say, uh, other countries we're deeply invest who our financial elite is deeply invested in, say, like Saudi Arabia, um, this, uh, this narrative does permit the Democrats to conveniently omit a more conveniently omit, uh, if you're not familiar with omitting, it's a more professional, dignified <laughs> form of lying. Um, uh, the concerns that are at the foremost of many in their non-white constituency. For instance, uh, don't the Democrats have, some th have to show their commitment to those minorities they happily champion in their advertisements uh, through the 2016 election, and then went on to fail by trying to run a, a campaign with only, or trying to win an election with only a three-point margin of victory? Uh, those minorities who now, uh, some of whom face families being ripped apart by ICE, uh, and or who have been subject to violence uh, because we have someone with a national platform, our president, who literally spouts hate crime propaganda. Um, I know some people, I'll, I'll just uh, pause here for a moment. Um, you might be thinking, well, aren't there a lot of minority white people, right? Like, uh, I, I mean, I've met many a white Indian uh, if in this circumstance, uh, this kind of white professional. I've often told it to their face uh, that they are uh, as such. Um, but I, I, uh, I, uh, I, I do think uh, there is sort of a breakdown that's happened, especially uh, after 2001, where people even who come from uh, backgrounds that uh, may be more suited for this uh, professional lifestyle uh, to see say, as Trump said, uh, that uh, the communities they come from, such as Edison, New Jersey, there were thousands and thousands of Muslims cheering on the 9-11 attacks. Uh, that's nothing less than hate crime propaganda. And uh, somehow that concerns me a little bit more than uh, Russian bots. But um, on to other aspects of uh, how Democrats have failed uh, minorities or what they owe minorities. Uh, consider, the fail, uh, consider the violence of the failed basic services that disproportionately affect people of color. As Nina Turner, a black commentator, a black political commentator and former state senator uh, of Ohio put it on CNN last year, that if you were to ask in Flint, Michigan, a majority black city, they wouldn't ask you about Russia and Jared Kushner. They'd want to know uh, how, are, how are we going to get some clean water and why some 8,000 people are about to lose their homes. Right? Flint, Michigan being one of only 3,000 communities in the U.S. Uh, 
predominantly communities of color affected by uh, lead poisoning in uh, their pipes. Um, uh, something that's not easy to make money on and spin into uh, uh, the democratic platform. Um, but of course, uh, sensible people have to reach the center and answer this responsibly and say, yes, we'll deal with that, but first we have to deal with those Russian bots, right? Uh, those, those Russian bots that have been dividing us and tearing us apart, uh, the left that needs to cohere together, um, they have been uh, just digging in on these divides, um, and you have to ask yourself, well, are these divides not real? Um, as, uh, as was uh, discussed in the uh, Mueller indictment uh, that came in February uh, that charged Russian nationals with election fraud, uh, that focused on social media being used to organize Clinton and Trump rallies um, that were designed to spark racial strife between white people and minorities in an attempt to disrupt uh, the 2006 presidential election and benefit Trump, um, uh, an author from The Root notes that uh, that the conclusions from experts on, uh, on election turnout, uh, such as uh, Cheryl Lard from the uh, government professor at Bowdoin College in Maine, said the turnout was in fact lower in 2016 than 2012 because black voters were simply not as excited about the candidate as they were about Barack Obama, uh, a candidate, uh, Hillary Clinton, who uh, conspicuously spent a lot of her time uh, campaigning and raising funds in the Hamptons uh, rather than uh, addressing the general public. Um, uh, he goes on to say, I'm suspicious of any article that argues Russian bots uh, discourage black voter turnout or encourage white voters uh, to be even more racist than they already are. <laughs> Trump won because many white Americans wanted to maintain white supremacy. Uh, thanks to all of the Beckys, uh, AKA 53 percenters for that. Um, uh, not some unknown Twitter bot in Moscow. Um, indeed, I do not think a Twitter bot in Moscow uh, sp uh, spearheaded the Black Lives Matter movement, which is the impression you would get from many of uh, the supporters of uh, Comey and Mueller. Uh, and uh, coming to Comey and Mueller, uh, what about these resistance heroes we're supposed to uh, lionize? Uh, in reference to the FBI objecting to the Nunez memo, uh, which I do think is a bad th was uh, in bad faith, uh, but. Uh, it's interesting to see the words he chooses uh, to talk about uh, this situation. And uh, he says, take heart, this is James Comey in a tweet, uh, American history shows that in the long run, weasels and liars never hold a field. So long as the good people stand up. Not a lot of schools or streets named after Joe McCarthy. Right? Very inspiring words from a man who spent many, many years working in the J. Edgar Hoover building. <laughs> As I mentioned, uh, J as I mentioned before, uh, there's the COINTEL program, the program that was designed to sub uh, spy on subversive groups in the United States during the 60s and the 70s, uh, targeting groups like the Black Panthers. Um, <coughs> a group, uh, a a situation um, uh, that uh, a situation that uh, created a lot of distrust among um, minorities of all different backgrounds uh, for uh, the FBI. Uh, and what's uh, crucial to remember is uh, those tactics have not gone away. In fact, they've continued uh, today under people like Comey and Mueller, uh, both of whom oversaw programs to entrap terrorists, which in fact mostly entrap mentally ill people, uh, who were prodded and prompted to uh, commit terrorist plots 
that were uh, so difficult for some FBI officers that they had to go to extreme lengths to buying the, uh, the particular weapons for the individuals to carry out their plots. Um, uh, we also had uh, Comey uh, in, uh, we, rather we had Mueller uh, going out of his way in the service of professionalism uh, to cover up certain aspects of uh, how the FBI failed on 9-11 and also going further uh, to, uh, to obfuscate uh, Saudi Arabia's, some of the officials of its government being involved in those attacks. Um, because you do have to uh, do what your bosses tell you. Um, and of course, there's the, that boss uh, who's been kindly rehabilitated uh, by many a person uh, in the resistance. Uh, that would be George Bush. Um, uh, that uh, shining figure who uh, stands against racism and for bombing <laughs> and obliterating uh, Iraqis. Um, now I, I do want to clarify. I do think uh, people have gone overboard. And I do understand that perspective. I remember when I was in college, there were a number of people who would go out and protest and say things like, Bush is Hitler. Right? I think that's going overboard. I think it's absurd to say something like, Bush is Hitler today. right? George Bush went out there, committed a series of heinous war crimes, basically destroyed an entire country that had nothing to do with 9-11, created a power vacuum, which ISIS took over and created a whole new generation of terror. But afterwards, as we've all seen, he went on to become a pretty successful painter. <laughs> two chapters to that story, folks. Two chapters, two chapters. Not equally Hitlery. not equally Hitler. Uh, some... Sometimes that commentary doesn't sit well with some people, and I can see that here, and I understand that. I, I, understand that. I do respect all of you here, and I want you to feel comfortable. I understand that uh, sort of joke is a bit of a slow burn. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a slow burn that when it starts burning, it doesn't stop. <laughs> it's just, it's uh, a bit like the white phosphorus we dumped on civilians in Iraq. Um, oh, man, that's, that's incredibly well-crafted as a joke. I mean, like... I mean, if you're going to cheer on the troops who are doing it, I think I deserve it as well. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll put myself out on a limb there. Um, I, I know I've <laughs> gone a little sour here, so uh, maybe I should veer back a little bit. Um, I, do, I do want to uh, offer here uh, a gesture to reconcile uh, with the whites I've mocked tonight. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I was planning, in fact, to dis sing a uh, Decemberist parody sea shanty about a leftist and a liberal trapped in the belly of a whale, uh, <laughs> symbolizing how we need to work together uh, to free ourselves from the whale, which represents tr Russia or Trump or bad stuff or whatever. I, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a really good, well-wrought metaphor. Um, but instead, I'd like to end on a verse from a different white folk singer, uh, one who in his lyrics affirms the values of our FBI, of our CIA, of all those good people, those dedicated, hardworking men. Um, and if you know the words, please feel free to sing along. Once I was young and impulsive, I wore every conceivable pin, even went to the socialist meetings, learned all the old union hymns. But I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Thank you, white people. Thank you, Tom Harrison, for having me. Arash, thank you.
Arish actually was a last minute fill in and he was like, hey, I want to talk about how the Decemberists are terrible. And I'm like, Johnny, no more. You're in. <laughs> and to be fair, if you're like, I'm white, why did he yell at me? It's because uh, the last two times Arish was on the show, I called him Arish, which is wrong. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Before we get on to the debate portion of the skewer, I like to call up so that our friend Mike Haverty can win a sticker. Kevin Johnson for the third round of the Fake News Quiz. Also, Mike, kiss, come on. Thank you for coming to the stage, Billy Corgan. Thank you very much. Cool. Um, you know how the game is played. I don't need to explain nothing. Two truths, one lie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No. Yes. <laughs> that was that a was lie. a lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, I, like in my head right now, it's just like Mueller, Mueller. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Story one. Problem at sex doll brothel. The Johns are getting too weird. Right. <laughs> There's a, there's a lot in that story. There's sex... What are you fucking yeah. <laughs> Story two. McDonald's is flipping its golden arches to celebrate back Black Panther's Wakanda. <laughs> you know they got that Disney money. That sweet, sweet Disney money. Story three. Rapper Vent Staples starts a GoFundMe campaign for people who want him to, quote, shut the fuck up forever. <laughs> Um, it's amazing whether it's true or false. <laughs> Damn straight. I want to say that's true. Um, I'm going to say that the second one is false. The McDonald's one? The McDonald's one. I believe... Well, I know it is they, false. Yeah, they flipped it the other They did flip it. They did flip the W, yeah. but it was for uh, International Women's Day, which means every other day it's for men. <laughs> McDonald's. <laughs> Man Donald's, exactly. <laughs> da 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 da, male privilege. Anyway, okay, second set of stories. First, headline Trump, sorry, Trump floats the idea of creating a space force, you know, to fight the wars in space. <laughs> Story two People were asked to name women tech leaders, and a sizable amount replied, My mom? Meaning their mom, not my mom. <laughs> Just to clarify. Story three. Teachers can't afford Miami rents. The county has a plan. Let them live at school. <laughs> so remember, remember, yeah. it's what is fake, not what you I want know. to be fake. Right. <laughs> no, this is false. Um, I'm going to go with that second one. The second one with the tech leaders? Yes. The, the my mom one, my mom. I wonder, like, if I stare at him long enough, he'll change his answer. No, but no, he is correct. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it would work. I would, I would just be like, oh shit, three. Yeah, like I, I wonder if, like, if I waited like three minutes and just like stared into his soul. Um, so uh, okay, so they did not answer my mom. They answered Alexa, Siri. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, I get to educate. Entertain, it's great. So, uh, your third set of stories. First, Ford recalls 1.3 million cars for Windows. 
that might explode in cold temperatures. <coughs> Story two. <laughs> Experts warn of dangerous trend among teens. The condom snorting challenge. Uh, story three. In case of a shooter, a Pennsylvania school district is arming teachers, or sorry, arming students with rocks. The, in, the, in that story, actual rocks. Um, yes, not rock and roll. Oh, <laughs> it's not that music's going to save them. Okay. Uh, I'm... So, one is cars exploding windows, two, condom snorting challenge. Story three, rocks against guns. Three, four, three. Three, four, three. Like, I'm... Yes. Uh, jinxing it. Shit. Uh, okay. Hey, don't jinx it, Tom. <laughs> uh, um, I'm gonna say that it's three. The third one. No. The... <laughs> Shit. No! No! At what, at what fucking point did I say there's crowd... Will you choose to listen to the crowds? But now that I thought about it, no, I can't. It's, no, it's no, no, no. Go, go, go with the crowd. Do whatever you need to do. I mean, sometimes I like it's good to committed. check your fucking sources, right? <laughs> right? Story two. Oh God! Is that like a sign from God? So wait, what are you, are you going with story two? I mean, I, I feel like like just ethically, I have to go. With what story? Two. What what story do you guys want? <laughs> See, that's how, that's how one. you do it, man. <laughs> story one. All right. Now that we've gotten past all of that and we have consensus, God fucking damn it. <laughs> so yes, the, okay. Shoot the, the the kids are getting rocks. The kids are snorting condoms. But these goddamn windows are not exploding. It's just the, the, the minor problem of the steering wheels falling off sometimes. So with a little bit of help from our friends, you and the smashing pumpkins are the first to best the quiz. Thank you. Th- thank you, audience. This feels very victorious and also hollow. Please. But I will accept Please it. do not congratulate our friends. <laughs> thank you. You did it. And we welcome back to the stage the host for the evening. Thank you, Kevin. That was great. And as much as, as, as I feel for, for poor Mike struggling through a difficult quiz. Uh, that does not count as the first three for three. The quiz is still undefeated. Let it be known throughout. I'll still give him the, the drink. Oh, that's nice. It's a, it's a story for the ages. Anyway, so before we go into the debate, I would like to point out the fact that we've had all these great writers up here reading writing that they wrote, spent their time doing. It's entertained you greatly. How about you, you pay them for their trouble? Uh, there is a donation fucking bucket right near the door, if you didn't see it on the way in. 
uh, if you want to drop a few fucking cash dollar bills of American money in there, that goes directly to our writers to pay them for the work that they did. So that's a real good thing to do. And also we have that book that we mentioned before, which owns. All right, I've shilled plenty. Time for the debate. Our first debater reads and writes in Uptown's finest sunroom. He has recently performed at Junior Varsity and appeared on the podcast Classroom Crush. They both apparently have school themes. Who knew? (laughs) Please welcome Josh Watkins to the stage. Of course, what is a debate without a second debater? Our, our second debater is an artist, poet, and computer programmer in Chicago. She is also the co-producer of The Skewer, this very show, and is very funny and great and just a delight all around. Please welcome Erica Dreisbach. Sportsmanship. Delightful. So, what are we debating this month? Well, let me tell you. This month, John Bolton, an actual criminal who loves blood, (laughs) was installed as the national security advisor to President Donald Trump. At the same time, the Mercers, a family of monster humans who hate life, have ramped up their charm offensive trying to convince the American populace that the aftermath of a nuclear war actually wouldn't be that bad. <laughs> Taking all this together, it's clear. Uh, we're going to live in, like, fucking Mad, Wack, Mad Max world, like, next month. It's happening. <laughs> so the question then becomes, how do we spin this new world that we're going to live in as a positive? How do we stay hopeful? Josh, what are you going to be arguing for? Thank you, Tom. Uh, Today I'll be arguing that uh, John Bolton's ascension to the uh, National Security Advisory will actually lead to a nuclear apocalypse, and it will be good because it will teach us all more about simple living and mindfulness. (laughs) Erica, what will you be arguing? That we can express our true selves more freely by joining colorfully themed biker gangs. What sides? Incredible. Both sides are going to have five minutes to present opening statements. I'm going to come back on stage, ask them some stupid-ass questions that they're going to have to answer on the fly, and then they're going to get one minute of closing. Who wishes to go first? I'd like to go first. Erica, you're going first. Let's do it. Back in the ancient days of 2012, when lonely did I wander the bleak world of online dating... I would wishfully answer cute matchmaking questions on a website called OkCupid, which rhymes with bad date, stupid. (laughs) I don't remember any of the questions now, save one. It was, on a certain level, wouldn't nuclear war be exciting? It's a question that dares you to answer, "Mm, you know what? Actually, yeah, kind (laughs) of. The question assumes that you, too, are shallow and feckless and callow, that you have lived a life insulated from daily violence and food shortage, that you throw your recyclables directly into the garbage, or worse, (laughs) that you're a litter bug, that you love family guy and vaping, (laughs) and you say things like, dude, I might be a high... 
But on a certain level, wouldn't nuclear war be exciting? I am not shallow. I am full of feck. Nuclear war can only be exciting in the abstract. I believe that the madmen in power, namely John Boy Bolton and Donald John Boy Drump, who are on public record as loving war, provided that their feeble bodies are not on the line. For them, nuclear war is not an abstraction. It's the game plan. They are barely able to keep their weird dicks in their pants today, this very day. That's how hard their preemptive nuclear strike boners are pushing at the fraying half-open flies of their chinos. And their boners are turning and pointing in the direction of the nuclear football whenever it's in the room as moray eels follow prey. I think nuclear war will be terrible, like cancer. On a certain level, though, wouldn't be cancer be exciting? No. I think it will be the worst thing that has happened to humans ever. And it will be very stressful. You know how petty office politics bring out your lowest self already? Guess what, my sweet chickens? Nuclear war is going to be so much worse. Feel overwhelmed by complication now? How about when you have to choose between cutting off your own leg to feed your found family of feral children and miscreants versus selling yourself into slavery for three cans of beans? A post-nuclear world won't be simple or fun like watching a Mad Max movie. It'll be like when you see news clips of bombing in Syria and think, I am glad I'm not in Aleppo. You don't tweet it, but you think it. Guess what, my exquisite dumplings? In nuclear war, Aleppo comes to you. (laughs) There will be no yoga. There will be no meditative contemplation. There will be no redemption. And when resource hyperscarcity begins and the radiation sickness sets in, we will long for the sweet release of death. We will wish it were come before the mushroom boom. And that's how we'll talk in heavy leaded rhyme. (laughs) We won't have the energy for polysyllables. Nightmare. But I hold out a lone hope that maybe, just maybe, there could be an upside to nuclear war. Not that I would become a better, simpler person as my opponent would have you believe. I'm complex. That's something I like about myself. I'm great. I'm not humble, but I'm great. You know me. And I know you. You guys are great. We're all already great. So why should we change? Why should we waste precious dwindling energy on becoming, quote, better people according to the rules of a decaying mutant world? I don't want to be more mindful, but I would like more time to ride my bicycle. (laughs) I don't like motorcycles, and I don't intend to overcome that dislike in the case of the coming nuclear disaster. So I willfully interpret the word biker to mean one who rides a bike cycle. That's me. Oh, hey, who's that standing behind me in intimidating formation? That's my gang, the Volvolini. We divide amongst us the anti-radiation pills that my husband and I bought the day after the 2016 election in preparation for nuclear war, a real thing that we actually did. We wrap our fists and forearms in bicycle chain that we can then use to whip our enemies or deliver a crushing punch that will send teeth flying. We forge machete from broken cars and we ride east to Washington, D.C. 
And then my biker gang will exact vengeance on they that burnt the world. Wouldn't you love to don some leathers and join us? Kill men all day? Make love to women all night? We'll share what we have as an anarcho-syndicalist collective and soup up our rides into wheeled chariots of vengeance. We won't be enlightened, no. We will set the world on fire. And we will be free. Namaste, bitches. A specter is haunting Chicago. The specter of fully automated luxury gay space communism. We are busting our humps toward this noble goal of a truly egalitarian space society while the villains hide in their castles, consolidating wealth and power. The struggles of the marginalized and the vulnerable seem never ending. And day to day, we millennial SJWs are scraping by as debt peons in the uninsured hellscape of the gig economy. Our planet is cooking, the memes are stale, the Nazis got a second wind, and you know how damn high the rent is. (laughs) Folks, I'm starting to think America was a bad idea. But the long national nightmare of our post, 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 postmodern age is finally over because America's new national security advisor is the most battle-thirsty old madman in the beltway. Henry Kissinger, go clean Hitler's pool, you vampiric shit wizard. We're living in the dawn of our new daddy, John Bolton. Okay, and it says here, hold for applause for John Bolton. Very good. I can't believe you did that. Uh, Bolton resents international laws. He's horny for shredding peace treaties and for years has appeared on Fox News crowing about first strikes against Iran and North Korea. At long last, he gets to mount his warhead-sized saddle and end our dump truck planet in a war crime inferno. (laughs) And you all are probably nervous about Bolton's appointment. And I'm not unsympathetic. I, too, was hoping for fully automated luxury gay space communism. (laughs) But I posit that the inevitable demolition of life as we know it will be the best possible step towards simple living and mindfulness. Now, following civilization's mutually assured nuclear destruction, most of us will achieve the highest echelon of Zen by dying instantly. (laughs) Remember before you were born, before your parents betrayed you by thrusting you into the reality meat grinder? Perfect stillness and peace. We should all be so lucky. But those of us emerging from the rubble as survivors will be confronted with a bold new vision of minimalistic living. The first thing you'll notice is the phone that normally spies on you and sends you on dates with boring townies is no longer of use. Without the distraction of refreshing your Gmail every five minutes, imagine how much easier it'll be to have a real one-on-one conversation about how many loved ones are missing or assumed dead. And books. Remember books. When you're foraging in nature trying to figure out which berries won't kill you, you can't ask Siri, she's dead. You'll need to make a pit stop in the ruins of a library and have a physical, tactile experience with what remains of a half-charred book. If you think about it, we should be thanking John Bolton because all those gadgets you thought you needed, gone. 
goodbye to the poison website for idiot assholes, twitter.com, the famous platform our president uses to call women fat and play chicken with foreign leaders. Think of how much better you'll feel without Twitter. And we'll be getting back in touch with our beautiful planet. No more traffic jams, no more cars. What'd your car ever do for you? Does it tickle your asshole? I never learned how to drive. No more fast food, no more McDonald's. Just fresh, organic leaves. No more fluorescent-lit Jewel Oscos full of people who should be on suicide watch. After the fall, we'll learn to cultivate Mother Earth, planting soybeans and rows of corn while fending off freakishly mutated man rodents. A low-tech life stripped of the anti-humanism of profit-driven globalization brings equality by turning us all into hunter-gatherers fearing for survival. Once our daily lives are reduced to the road exercises of food, shelter, and constant fucking, we can truly center ourselves. Which brings me to mindfulness. In 2018, what are our available tools for battling stress and being more mindful? Diarrhea brain swindlers like Eckhart Tolle and Tony Robbins transform urgent ideas of empathy and communication into empty personal brands, propping up the status quo. Your phone that was made by wage slaves can download hundreds of cute mindfulness apps that remind you to drink water and breathe and, <laughs> hey, don't sweat the small stuff, champ. Right now, the billionaires gentrifying San Francisco into gay Dubai are doing high <laughs> yoga and writing TED Talks on how STEM will magically cure the school-to-prison pipeline. Yes, believe it or not, even positivity has been co-opted by the Lovecraftian beast of neoliberalism. But in the post-nuclear age, all those gatekeepers and their snake oil will vanish. Imagine the genuine gratitude. Tom, hold my tie. <laughs> I didn't tie it because I don't know how. Imagine the genuine gratitude you'll feel towards your body, no matter how many thermal radiation burns. There will be many new sensations for you to observe and internalize. Hear your companions screaming, why, God, why? Feel the warmth of fire, the horizons burning, fire as far as the eye can see. No banal life hack will have prepared you for the peace that you feel, digging tunnels beneath the ruined cityscape, avoiding the cannibalistic militias of survivalists. As you rebuild civilization one day at a time, you'll experience a sense of being with the great silence of God. You'll be truly living in the moment because each moment is assuredly your last. <laughs> My opponent believes that after the fall of humanity, we should further atomize ourselves into separate groups distinguished by admittedly very cool color-coded jackets. <laughs> but folks, haven't we had enough division already? Anti-fa versus fa. <laughs> Sweet, creative, millennial versus vile, parasitic boomer. Donald Trump Jr. versus family court. No, I believe our administration's barbaric nuclear policy will ring in an age of camaraderie, a heightened awareness of ourselves, and a simple life stripped of the horrible culture that created Minions memes. Thank you. Josh, I would just want—I just want to let you know because apparently no one told you 
It is, in fact, a tie, not a drape rakishly around one's neck. Is this rigged? I'm glad you asked, because yes. Um, This is the question and answer portion, and my first question is, because the game is rigged, for you. And it's a gotcha question, so so just you wait. Josh, you would agree that you're something of an an ascetic type of person, a neo-Luddite, if you will. You're not on social media. You try not to be online too much. You think that de-screening as a concept is a good thing for the general mental health of people these days. Is that safe to say? Please say yes, because then the joke doesn't work. (laughs) Yes. Cool. Well, sir, I have it on good authority from a villain who bedevils us both that you, Josh Watkins, recently purchased a flat-screen televisual entertainment set so large that you had to call a car-owning friend to drive it home for you in a car that was barely big enough to hold it. How do you respond to this jaw-dropping hypocrisy? Joe, what are you doing after the show? We're fighting. Yeah, thank you. Um, I would like to counter that by saying I saw what's happening to us coming, and I did want to enjoy the masterpieces of cinema on the large television. And let me just tell you that what I've been doing, what I've been doing with this TV, the other day, in fact, I was using it to listen to 24-hour lo-fi hip-hop anime beats for chilling and studying to. While I was on the internet, using a coupon code I got from a podcast about serial killers to buy fancy underwear, because we live in shit world, so yes, I will enjoy my stupid large TV in the meantime. I remain unconvinced, but whatever, (laughs) if if, if that's what you're going to say. Erica, I have a question for you. One thing that fells a lot of progressive groups is infighting. How will you keep your free and tolerant biker gangs from descending into bloody wars on the sun-scarred highways of the post-apocalyptic desert hell world? Well, as I think it's been pretty clearly implied, it's only lesbians in these bike gangs. Um, And lesbians are very free from infighting. You go to Dyke March, it is just a sea of lesbians holding hands and singing the same songs in unison. In fact, it's often... Well, not a dyke march per se, but the night before, you probably went to the Katie Curtis concert and you probably heard the sweet strains of Magnolia Street. That's for the two of you who were lesbians in 2006. You know what I'm talking about. So uh, that's going to be where our main source of unity comes from. Obviously, I thought that was pretty obvious. Yeah, but you didn't get to make a Magnolia Street joke, so you're welcome. I think it's the second Magnolia Street joke you've made on the skewer. It's great. (laughs) Josh, I got a question for you, you dumb cock. (laughs) When social media is gone, when there's just no... You you can't log on. How are you going to let people know that you made an especially beautiful plate of dog food and withered roots for dinner? 
uh, I was going to quote uh, Emerson, and I never read him. <laughs> Actually, uh, for the crime of never reading Emerson, I was sent to a boring white guy jail for a few months last year. Um, but I will quote, uh, uh, this is a, a totally anonymous, this is not in Ted Kaczynski's uh, manifesto. This quote is not from the Unabomber who killed three people. Uh, I found it on an image macro of uh, like a forest burning. Uh, uh, let us not forget that technology with a, uh, or, uh, that the human race with technology is like an alcoholic with a barrel of wine. If you make a plate of beautiful dog food, for the dog's sake, it's beautiful. But when you do it, when you, this, this, this greedy, nasty Instagram culture, I don't have a smartphone, I don't know what the fuck, the, people tweeting about dog food, okay? <laughs> but it's gross, it's not good anymore, it's not beautiful, and also the, most of the dogs are gonna die after the nuclear fallout anyway, I'm sorry to say that. We totally missed the fact that in Mad Max they eat Dinkadin brand dog food as their main stable, but whatever, that's fine. <laughs> Eric, I got a question for you. What if I want to express my true inner self in this post-apocalyptic world, but I don't have a bike, or I can't find others who want to join my gang? Uh, you gotta, you gotta get a bike. That's like top priority number one. But here's the thing. A bike is easy to build and to repair on your own in a post-nuclear... This is a real thing. This is actually me being really real in terms of this is about the radiation pills plan. This is also about my husband and I figuring out, like, well, how would we do to Chicago if we had to leave Chicago? It's like, well, we'd get on our bikes. So you got to get a bike. That's, like, <laughs> step number one. You're saying, like, my step number one is no bike, and I'm telling you, you got to back up <laughs> one step. <laughs> and you got to get a bike first. <laughs> Rad, radical. Just no exceptions. I like it. Josh, I got a third question for you. Can you call me a name? No, you're cool now. I, I, you've earned it. <laughs> Part of what makes mindful living so powerful in 2018 is that you have to actively choose it. It's, it's against what the status quo is telling you to do. How will it stay meaningful after the apocalypse when there's literally no other choice? Uh, Tom, I'm glad you asked that question. I think a lot of mindfulness in 2018 is very meaningful, but a lot of mindfulness in 2018 happens to have a little uh, horniness for the status quo because a lot of it is just like, hey, forget about the stuff you can't change, do you, whatever, and that kind of sucks when a lot of things that you should be changing are out there requiring you to, you know, ante up and do stuff. Now, in the post-apocalypse, uh, everyone will be on fire at all times. You have no choice but to really confront the moment, and when everybody is sharing in that, like, I'm being chased by a weird, winged creature I've never seen before, we're all brought together in this uh, sort of shared experience of, 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 of improvisation and thinking on your feet and really using the tools available to you to stab the uh, winged creature <laughs> in question to death. Uh, I need to rebut that. I'm sorry. I was not made aware that this was a sci-fi fantasy <laughs> debate. I was only made aware it was a sci-fi debate, so... Uh, okay, fine. Uh, t a terrible tall man. Who Thank you, sir. I don't know. <laughs> Perfect counter. <laughs> Eric... <laughs> Oh, it's me. Well, it tracks. Erica. 
I have a third question for you. Some might say, I don't know if these some are correct or not, they might be fools, but some might say that joining a wacky biker gang with a fun theme is just another mentally stressful obligation we're taking on to ourselves, just another form of social media, if you will, where you constantly have to put on a front and jockey for status. How do you respond for this? And I know you already said lesbian unity, so, like, a second joke. But, like, jockeying for status, people love that petty bullshit. People love drama. People love it. There's not going to be television. We're not going to be like Josh Watkins at home with our giant television screen that's supposedly playing hip-hop beats for chilling and studying 24 hours a day. We're going to need some entertainment. And where are you going to find drama more hardcore than in a lesbian biker gang? So why avoid it? Dive into it. I love it. I'm into it. Come on. Oh my god. You did say that there was no disunity between lesbians. Where will the drama come from? Oh, it's like a telenovela. Family doesn't break up. It's the same cast for 50 years. I kind of love that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I have one more question that I wish you both to answer, and then the question and answer portion will be complete. In this scenario, of course, John Bolton is going to push hard for nuclear war that's going to end the world. But one of his uh, stipulations is that before the bombs start flying, his head is cut off and preserved in a jar. And that jar is placed in a robotic mecha battle suit with a big <laughs> rail gun where the dick would be. And in the post-apocalypse, he's just going to roam the country just howling and cutting a swath of death over the landscape as he's always dreamed. My question is, when you guys encounter him shrieking across the horizon, what is your strategy to bring him down? I will refer to one of my favorite battle tactic manuals, which is um, The Empire Strikes Back. And you got an AT-AT walker, so we're going to have boomerangs with cables tied to the end. Well, the unified... Uh non-space, uh, still-gay, socialist utopia that we're going to be living in in the nuclear apocalypse, we will be coordinating ourselves in a way that we can uh, sort of jimmy up this gigantic John Bolton like a, like a, like a bunch of squirrels into a nest and, and, and uns- unscrew the stupid fucking glass jar his head is in and, 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 and squish it until he can't use his dumb robot mecha <laughs> Probably. Yeah, that'll do. Thank you both. For a delightful question and answer segment. Now, before we decide a victor, we decide who survives and who gets put on the post-apocalyptic desert wasteland by themselves to just die of exposure. Well, it's a surprise. I'm I'm, I'm switching it up. We've done 28 skewers. You've got to keep it fresh. Before we do that, we have to have our closing statements. Josh, since you went second in the opening, would you like to go first on the closing? I will do it. Then do it. (laughs) 
that old trick. <laughs> there will still be paper. Uh, it says here that the International is supposed to play, but I didn't get a sound cue. Uh, friends, if the fourth International Posadists teach us one thing, yes. it's that the nuclear holocaust is guaranteed to destroy the imperialistic hierarchies that oppress society. If they're right about another thing, it's that UFOs will bring socialism to Earth, and also we could totally communicate with dolphins if we just tried harder. <laughs> In these grim, regressive times, it's easy to get fatalistic or cynical about the future. And I think as ugly as the world looks, we're also gaining a lot of victories and slowly sculpting the kind of society that values taking care of everyone. History isn't some linear, upward march of progress. It's an erratic cardiograph of material struggle. And even if we're fighting a losing battle, it's the right thing to do. And maybe having each other's backs in global solidarity to the bitter end takes the pain out of losing. But luckily, we don't gotta worry about none of that shit. Because the rapist game show host in charge of the Western world has appointed Earth's reset button as his co-pilot. By fulfilling the Posadas prophecy, the remaining two-fifths-ish of humanity can start from scratch and begin the healing process. And after the dark mushroom cloud clears, we'll begin embracing a new cord-cut, no-flat-screen-TV-ass-having, death-drunk world by day honoring each blessed moment and waking in the night screaming for mercy. If it means putting our infernal past behind us to achieve collective consciousness, then I declare, Boltonize me, Captain. Thank you. Here are some potential names for my biker gang that are both nuclear and bicycle themed. Chain link reaction. The Geiger mounters. Meltdown shifters. The Pelo Megaton. Thermal sprocket. The China Velocidrome. Two wheeled mutation nation. Fukushimano snap ring. Atomic crankshafts. I want to be in any of those gangs. Just based on the name alone. I want to be in all of those gangs. I don't want to eat, pray, love. I want to eat a woman named Pray Love. I want to ride my bicycle. Choose me. Ride with me. Yay, verily, both of our competitors have acquitted themselves with great gusto. But only one can claim the prize. And what is the prize? I joked about it before. It was to survive, but that was a lie. The real prize, what is it? It's this delightful skewer with a bauble on the end. But only one of these delightful folks can go home with it. We're going to need a judge who is impartial and can determine who gets the louder crowd applause. Mike Haverty, you hate Josh, right? <laughs> awesome. Would you like to be our judge? Sure. Perfect. <laughs> if you... I didn't say come to... Well, he's here now. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, 
if you believe that Josh Watkins is the victor of this debate, please applaud right now. If you believe that Erica Dreisbach is the victor in this debate, please applaud right now! <laughs> Mike, Mike, what's the verdict? I know, it's really close. It seems like it's going to be Josh Watkins. Oh. As much as I hate to admit it, Josh, you have won this debate! Thank you! Oh, what a delightful show. Thank you all so much for being here and letting us yell words at you. Um, if you like what you heard, uh, we are also a podcast. We're recording right now. You can listen to us if you don't want to actually come to the show, but actually do come to the show. I don't know why I said that it's okay to not. Um, we also have a dope mailing list. Erica writes good-ass emails every month that have lots of delightful photos. We also have for sale pins and stickers and our fucking best 2017 book, which has dope writing from such luminaries in this very room as Joe Anderson and Eric Lutz, who you heard earlier, and Roxanne West. And um, I think there's one more, but I can't remember. No, Nora Regis. She's great. They're all great. They're all in the book. Anyway, thank you. We'll be back next month. It's been me. Thank you for listening to the Skewer Podcast. If you liked what you heard, uh, you can come to a live show the first Wednesday of every month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago, or subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your uh, podcasts. Maybe, you know, leave us a review on iTunes or like us on Facebook. There's a lot of ways you can do it. Uh, if you want to be on the show, get in touch with us at skewerchicago at gmail.com, uh, and we'll do what we can. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time. Goodbye.